Hey there dudes and dudettes, and welcome to Extreme Movie Reviews, where the takes are as extreme as literally any product you could have bought in the 90s. It's totally time to set your Tamagotchis down, pick up your pogs off of the floor, sit back and relax for a radical time with your host. Today, we are going to wrap up June of 2021, the month of Camp Blood, with Friday the 13th, Part 2. If you haven't checked out my review of Friday the 13th Part 1 yet, you definitely should. In the process of creating that review, I was pleasantly surprised and I gained a lot of respect that I previously did not have for that movie. I've already got a fire going. Would you like a s'more? First, you take the gram. Then, you stick the chocolate on the gram. And then, you roast the malo. And when the malo's flaming, you stick it on the chocolate. Like, do you recommend the movie? Friday the 13th Part 2 is a horror movie which was released in 1981. It is rated R for violence, gore, drinking slash drugs, and sex. There is no abundance of any of those categories, and so the parents of commonsensemedia.com stated that kids should be 16 years of age or older to see this movie, while on the other hand the kids thought 14 plus was more appropriate and I think that that is a fair range. The plot synopsis goes something like this. Two months after the tragic events which occurred at Camp Blood back in 1979, the lone survivor, Alice, was mysteriously murdered. Five years later, 
Head Counselor Paul Holt is leading a two-week counselor training program at Camp Packenack, which is also located on Crystal Lake. Soon, the counselors begin to be picked off one by one. The legends of Jason Voorhees live on. But are they true? Who is doing the murder? Did Jason actually drown? There isn't much for notable actors in this movie that I noticed. Something of note, however, is that the producer of Friday the 13th Part 1, Steve Miner, became the director and producer for this movie. Fun little bits of information about Steve. He was a supervising producer on 13 episodes of The Wonder Years and the producer of 13 episodes of Dawson's Creek. He would also go on to be the director for the following movie, Part 3, and years later, in 1998, he would hop over to the OG franchise, Halloween, for the revival of that franchise when he directed Halloween H2O 20 years later. And that leaves the big question. Do I recommend you watch this movie? Well, I do. This movie set the groundwork for the franchise, and so... If you were into horror and or into this franchise, it is a must-watch. But I really do think that this movie is a solid movie, and that it is great for watching on a warm summer night as the sun sets outside. Tune out the world for an hour and a half. Whether alone, with a friend, or with your kid, I think it's a fun time. More than the first, to be honest. Ignore what you know about the legend of Jason because this movie was leading the franchise in a different route than it ended up taking. It's as good as any random horror movie you'll find on your locally streamed service. If you were to pop out of a side alleyway and punch me in the face, shouting, Out of five stars, what would you rate Friday the 13th Part 2? I would cry. Once I finished crying... I would look up at you wondering what the fuck is happening and tell you that I give it three out of five stars. And then you would skip off into the distance, laughing, and I would slowly rise to my feet, walk to the corner store, and buy one of those Flintstones push pops because those are delicious. Do you think the fans and the critics gave it some props reviews or what? In this section, I will be looking at a variety of reviews from both the audience and the critics. So let's start off on a good note with the critics. The first one is from James Kendrick of Q Network Film Desk, who gave it a two and a half out of four and said, Cannot be defended intellectually. Yet, the film's very simplicity and directness gives it a kind of folkloric power, albeit power that works only if you give yourself over to it. And Tim Brayton of Antagony and Ecstasy gave it a six out of ten, and he said, All things considered, it probably should have been a whole lot worse. You get the idea. It's no Citizen Kane. How would the other side of that critical coin look? Rob Vaugh of Flipside Movie Emporium said, Yes, it blows. Try to contain your surprise. He gave it a 1 out of 5, and our golden boy Ken Hank gave it a 2 out of 5, but his review was boring. So let's check out what John J. Puccio of Movie Metropolis had to say. Because most of these reviews sound like that last one. Out of 10, John gave it a 3, and he said, The new camp counselors are interchangeable with the old ones. Different faces, same basic people. Listen on, and you'll hear a different opinion from myself. Now, let's see what the audience had to say. And we're going to start off with a fair review from Adam E., who gave it a 1.5 out of 5 stars, and said, Despite a better setup and better acting than its original, Friday the 13th Part 2 
does not bring more of what we hoped for, but it does bring an interesting backstory to Jason. Let's see what Nathan C. saw. Nathan gave it 1.5 stars too, and he said, While rehashing the original, Part 2 manages to display more below-average acting and E-grade special effects. I'm curious what the people who liked it had to say. Like John Kay, who said, Friday the 13th Part 2 is one of my favorite horror movies. It is the first film with Jason and Final Girl beats him mentally and physically. Yep, look at Friday the 13th Part 2 having a strong female protagonist 35 years before it was hip. Seriously though, Ginny, the final girl in this movie, is badass, and just like Robert said, she wins both mentally and physically. That's probably why women tended to rate this movie a little higher than men. Let's end it on a fairly neutral review, but it's one that sort of floats between a lot of the reviews. Many reviews are only slightly positive or only slightly negative, and in one review, we can cover both of those sides. So thank you Bradley B, who gave it a 3 out of 5, and said, To me, it is tied with the first film. The first time we see Jason is kind of let down, but it did not drag the movie down. Do me a favor and work on your grammar, Bradley. What do you think the ratings look like? This is where I'll take my own stab at guessing what the audience and critics alike thought about the movie on a whole by first looking at the Rotten Tomatoes scores, which is essentially a thumbs up or a thumbs down system. After that, I'll look at the IMDb scores, which instead of did you like the movie asks how much did you like the movie on a scale of 1 to 10. Even though you're hearing this in a different order, obviously I had to make my guesses prior to looking at those prior reviews. So let's start off with the audience score from Rotten Tomatoes. I know this is one of the movies in the franchise that can be ranked anywhere on any given person's list. I wish I could recall what the first movie got right now, but I'm not going to cheat. 57%, that is my guess. And with over 50,000 ratings, the official Rotten Tomatoes audience score is currently sitting at a 48%, but it did get a 3.2 out of 5 average rating from the audience. Now, I'll take a stab at the Rotten Tomatoes critics score. From what I've gathered in the community and from listening to reviews on these this franchise over the years, it seems that one in three people actually seem to enjoy this movie. So, I'm going to guess that 38% of the critics gave this movie their stamp of approval. I think it should be higher, but I would not be surprised if it's even lower. And with 43 critics chiming in, the official Rotten Tomatoes critics score is a lowly 28%, with a mere 4.4 out of 10 average rating. Thinking about it logically now... The people that I've listened to are more often than not horror fans, so I probably should have gone in the opposite direction from my base of 33%. It is now time for the IMDb score. It's a B-level horror flick. I could see people not liking the acting as much as I do. The movie lacks in the kill department, and nowadays it's really nothing special. So I'm going to guess a 5.8 out of 10. And with approximately 61,000 ratings, the official IMDb score is 6.1 out of 10. 
Sixes and sevens dominated the field, receiving nearly 50% of the ratings. And strangely, the 10 women who rated this movie, the 10 that were under the age of 18, gave it a 9.9 rating, with 9 of them giving it a 10 and the other one giving it a 7. Coming up next is going to be a bit of a scene-by-scene walkthrough of the movie, which is followed by my favorite scene in the movie, as well as my rating of the technical aspects of filmmaking, which leads into my official podcast score. Then, to wrap everything up, I'll go over any interesting facts that I think don't get talked about enough or are simply interesting. Please remember that I do earmark each section for you in case you prefer to skip over any portions. That should help to make things easier for you. I earmark them through Buzzsprout, where my episodes are hosted, and just in case those don't make their way to your podcast player, I also have those earmarks included in the description for this episode. Hey dude, sorry, it's me again. I was just wondering, could you tell me more about the movie? The movie starts off with some imagery of Jason's boots as he splashes through the damp city streets. He's heading towards a house as we get transported inside, meeting back up with Alice, the survivor girl from part one. Alice is having a nightmare as the events of the third act from the last film play over in her head and visually on screen. This happens over the span of six and a half minutes. It is pretty boring, but for your information, I do explain the reasoning behind these types of scenes in older sequels in my review of Friday the 13th, Part 7. Alice receives a phone call from her mother. Come on, Mom. We've been through all of this before. I just have to put my life back together, and this is the only way I know how. She's living on her own and trying to move forward with her life. The phone rings a second time, and there is no one on the other line. This frightens Alice, and so she locks her door. Which, yes, means it was previously unlocked. She slowly creeps down the hall when she hears something fall in the kitchen. A window is open. It could simply be the wind, but you know what they say. Better safe than sorry. Alice picks up an ice pick before slowly approaching the window when a demon cat jumps in. I'm kidding. It is a normal cat. You can tell that because its food bowl is empty and it meows to summon its servant, 
Alice for a feeding session. Alice decides she is going to make some tea again, and we know how this has gone for her in the past. You want something to eat? She goes to get the cat some food from the fridge while the stove heats up, and she sees... Pamela Voorhees' decapitated head just chillin' in her fridge. She gone. This scene works, or at least could have worked at the time, because it does two things. And remember, this was prior to Jason being a pop icon, which in retrospect makes this beginning somewhat useless. The first thing this scene does is that it plays on the audience's expectations of assuming that the movie will follow Alice, and so it's a surprise when she's immediately killed off. And it also eliminates the possibility that she imagined decapitating Pamela, thus making it clear for the audience that Pamela is not the killer in this movie. It would seem the filmmakers took note of my last review... Because this time, the tea does heat up, and Jason kindly removes it from the heat source as to prevent any potential fire hazards. And... Just like in part one, in all white letters across a stark black screen, the words Friday the 13th Part 2 come flying at the screen from the back to the foreground. This time, they explode. With excitement. As the track as the credits for the feature film Roll. It's very clearly another score from Harry Manfredini but this time there's a lot of life and excitement in the score. It's much more playful and less threatening overall. Splashes of the classic Brawl throughout the opening song as the movie begins. Almost 14 minutes in. We begin with a young couple driving down the road midday, and it appears they are slightly lost as they make their way to a payphone. The town does look slightly familiar. Hey, buddy! <laughs> we just rolled in. Yeah, yeah, Sandra's here. Hi, Ted. Hey, so you're going to come down and get us your way? Yeah, okay. Okay, give me the directions. And then uh, over... I told the others. They didn't believe me. You're all doomed. You're all doomed. Fucking crazy, Ralph. Which means we are near Camp Crystal Lake. Right off the bat, these actors feel light years ahead of the actors from the start of the previous movie. Our couple makes it to their buddy's place, and from there, the three of them head down to a camp where they are once again prepping for a summer full of kids. We are clued into the fact that this property abuts to Camp Blood and is on the same lake, Crystal Lake. And we get a couple of point of view shots, as well as shots of a man's hands in the woods as they set up the scene for this movie very similarly to the first. We know they're being watched by someone and they're going to play with that and use a couple of misdirects so we are able to get caught off guard for a good scare or two. At least, that's the writers, cinematographers, and editors' intent. There are quite a few counselors at this camp. I'm counting about 15. The last of which shows up in her red Volkswagen as her car comes to a full stall upon arrival. 
the camp coordinator, Paul, is not happy with Ginny for showing up late, and there's clearly a relationship between these two. Once again, very similar to the first movie in that regard. Paul helps her fix the car. Having trouble? You gotta treat him gentle. Just like kids. Use a little of that child psychology you're majoring in. Hmm, child psychology, you say? I wonder, will that come into play later on in the movie? The line feels a little intentional, but given the context, it's a very natural way to write in some exposition, so nicely done writing. Try it. It's more fun using that child psychology on you. You're such a sucker for it. I'm going to double dip here, and I will also congratulate the writing and acting. These characters are already likable. The movie transitions to that evening. Everyone is making s'mores around a campfire. I don't want to scare anyone. But I'm going to give it to you straight about Jason. His body was never recovered from the lake after he drowned. And if you listen to the old timers in town, they'll tell you he's still out there. Some sort of demented creature surviving in the wilderness, full grown by now, stalking, stealing what he needs, living off wild animals and vegetation. Some folks claim they've even seen him right in this area. The girl who survived that night at Camp Blood, that Friday the 13th. She saw. She disappeared two months later. Vanished. Blood was everywhere. No one knows what happened to her. Legend has it that Jason saw his mother beheaded that night, that he took his revenge. And there we go. They've mostly nicely set the story up so we can follow it from the previous movie. We know who the killer should be. It is a bit repetitive. We've been told these things two or three times by now in one way or the other. But telling this story around a campfire is what this series is about. And so they captured the essence of the first movie in this moment and helped to set the tone for the franchise. I also think some of the extra exposition may have been necessary at the time. Because only the previous movie existed, so they needed to make sure that the audience was on the same page as the movie was. In regards to my total enjoyability, that rating is going to take a bit of a hit for this, but I don't think that would be the case if this franchise wasn't so widely known by everyone when we go into this movie. The counselors are all interacting as the movie gives us some base information about some of them. Theodore is the annoying but possibly lovable goof and he's also a loner. The two he came to town with are only concerned with each other and are also a bit reckless. There's the suave rich kid who is attempting to seduce one of the single ladies. Hi, Terry. Do you want to dance? No, thank you. A cute Hi, puppy. How about you? Do you want to dance? Someone creeping from the outside. Hey, I'm striking out all over the place. Ginny is smart. Well, I think I've got you. Check me. Wrong, white man. 
Checkmate. Well, what next? I could get my arm broken by Mark. My brain's ponged by electronical wizard. Poor Ben. And... Crazy Ralph is creeping around outside. Being weird is normal. If you couldn't tell, he gone. But how in the hell are you going to do Crazy Ralph dirty like that? That's messed up, man. They should not have killed Ralph. I believe the writers wanted to make sure that we knew he was not the killer. I'm not going to praise or ding the writing for that one. At least we were saved from his overacting. Jason is watching the group as they take a hike through the woods, and the cute puppy, Muffin, is off on its own. Following a scent. When it finds Jason. The two lovebirds... Our reckless adventurers decide to impede on the property line of Camp Blood. Oh my god. What is it? Looks like a dog. They come across a mess of fur, intestines, and teeth. It's just the sheriff. No need to get spooked. What are you kids doing out here? Two quick items. The acting is terrible and it's very clearly a dog. Remember that. The sheriff is leaving the property when he sees someone dart across the road. Hey! He takes chase and comes across a little custom-built shack. Upon further investigation, he comes across something. But we don't see what yet. The cabin looks legit. Very nice job by the production crew. Some people head downtown to hang out while others stay and hang out at the camp. Muscles Mark, who you may have caught Ginny mention before, is in a wheelchair, and so he stays behind. Vicky, who we met for a very brief moment at the beginning, appears to have her eyes on Mark, and so she decides to stay, along with a few others who will also be staying at camp. We have our two lovebirds, Scott, previously known as the suave rich kid, and Terry, the girl he's trying to pick up. On the other hand, a bunch of random people, along with Paul and Ginny, will be going to the ball. Oh shit, I almost forgot about Theodore. It appears he'll be going downtown too. Jason just probably came in his pants. 
a little bit as he sees all of the vehicles leave the property. We are 45 minutes into the movie. Ralph and the sheriff have met their quick demises, but that's been it. Everything else has been pretty chill, but the scene has been set. Terry heads down to the water alone for a skinny dip, and Scott ends up stealing her clothes from the beach while she's in the water. They're not even close to a couple, though, so this is a pretty damn sleazy thing for him to do. And it does not take long for justice, as Scott gets trapped in one of those leg snare rope traps. You know what I mean. The rope's in a circle on the ground, and then it snares and hangs you upside down when you step inside of it. I'll let you hang, you pervert. But Terry isn't some sadistic murderer, so she does the right thing and heads to the cabin to get a knife to cut Scott down. Scott is waiting, just hanging out. Where is she? He gone. Nod to the special effects on the throat cut. It looks really well done, even on a modern screen. Terry returns to let him down, and the last we see of her, she had been turning around, and she lets out a big scream, as if she saw someone. Mark and Loverboy are having an arm wrestling match. Jeff, don't wear yourself out. You want to wrestle? Come with me. Later, Scooter. That cool delivery of Scooter, gotta love it. So, Lover Boy and Lover Girl head off on their own. Vicky makes a move on Mark. Want to take me on? Sure. But his big, meaty muscles must be cutting off the flow of blood to his brain. So the first few attempts by Vicky go right over Mark's head. What do you want to play for? Position. And with a big grin, Mark's finally on the same page. We catch up with Jimmy, Paul, and Theodore sipping on some brews at the bar. Trigger warning for this next clip. Remember when this movie was made. This whole thing's ridiculous, really. You know, two of our kids got bowled in today. It was five years ago. Some girl panics and falls out of a canoe. It's absurd. What if there is a Jason? Oh, bullshit, Jenny. No, what if there is some kind of boy beast running around Camp Crystal Lake? I mean, let's try to think beyond the legend, put it in real terms. I mean, what would it be like today? Some kind of out-of-control psychopath? A frightened retard? Child trapped in a man's body? Keep <laughs> you going by now, right? The conversation continues, but they're trying to show you that Ginny is thinking some of this through. They are setting things up so the final showdown is earned. And lastly, they're creating possible lore for Jason. And that's going to be points for the right. He must have seen the whole thing happen. He must have seen his mother get killed, and all just because she loved him. I mean, isn't that what her revenge is all about? Her sense of loss? Her rage at what she thought happened? Her love for him? Bizarre, isn't it? And he must be out there right now, crying for a return. For resurrection. What do you think? I think you're drunk. <laughs> I'll drink that. Hit us again, sweetheart. Not me. 
Jason's a legend. Well, that's true. We return to camp. Mark, what happened? Did you have to be in a chair? Motorcycle accident. Paralyzed my legs. Is it permanent? Doctor thinks so. I don't. I don't intend to be in this thing the rest of my life. Just your legs, huh? Is everything else okay? Vicky is relentless. I didn't include this only because that is a funny line. The writers insert some good qualities that the viewers can latch onto and care about these two through. So, points. Oh, I do all right. One way or another. Vicky heads out to freshen up for an evening with Mark. Choice of underwear, you ask? Why, only the sexiest color in the rainbow. Brown. She runs out to the car for something. She turns around and... Mark is scooting around. That's the lovebirds. I think what's about to happen goes without saying. This movie pays plenty of homage to the first movie, and I think them being killed with a spear is a callback to Kevin Bacon's kill in part one. Presumably, everyone who stayed at the camp has now been killed. Ginny and Mark leave the bar earlier than the rest. Mark? Vicky's alive! That was a bummer. Ginny and Paul discover a blood-soaked bed. Paul, what's going on here? Nothing. Nothing. And to think, I was about to say that they were reacting more realistically than Alice and the final guy or the last guy that she was with in part one. Paul, there's someone in this room. This movie's a bit of a mixed bag of acting. Paul, there's someone in this fucking room! Sometimes they nail it. 
it appears that Paul has lost the fight. It's down to Jason and Ginny. After a few jump scares, Ginny leaves the cabin because she's smart. She runs into the woods and almost gets caught by Jason, but she pulls a classic doubling back move, hiding behind a tree for a moment, and then she heads right back towards camp. It's a little unclear how the next events unfold exactly, but through some tricky editing, you see some time lapses and Jason's right back on her trail again. She hides under a bed, obviously frightened to all hell as Jason walks around looking for her. And a mouse comes crawling right up to her. I respect this movie and the actress so much for this next little bit. She pisses herself. You know that because you see a hefty stream running from under the bed. Unfortunately for her, Jason notices the pee, and he sets a wee trap for her. Through a little more tricky editing, it almost slips past you how this trap shouldn't be possible, but Jason is able to make it seem as if he left the cabin. Ginny crawls out from under the bed, and we quickly see Jason's stood up atop a chair ready to stab her. The chair breaks under his weight, and he misses. Ginny ain't no bitch, though, and she grabs a chainsaw which was nicely set up earlier on in the movie. I'd like to know what brand that chainsaw was because it starts up on the first try. Round one goes to Ginny. She catches Jason across the forearm with the chainsaw and breaks the rest of the chair over his back, escaping while Jason catches his breath on the ground face down. Ginny runs off again, but this time, she ends up right at Jason's shrine shack. Not realizing this, she enters, hoping to find someone for help. There's a wee bit of cinematography that I really like as you see Beghead Jason running towards the shack through a window. There's just something about the shot. We've arrived to the setup from earlier. What is in that room that took the sheriff by such surprise? Ginny finds three dead bodies, a skeleton, which I presume is Alice's corpse, Terry's body, so now we know that she did indeed die, and then the sheriff's body. All of them surrounding a little table with the head of Jason's mom, her sweater, and the machete that was used to kill her, all surrounded by candles, a shrine. Also, proof that Jason is in fact the killer in this movie. Do you remember what Ginny is going to school for? Keep that in mind. As Ginny puts on the sweater, it appears she also contemplates using the head in some fashion, but she quickly realizes that is both too gross and probably not possible. Before grabbing the machete, she turns around and then she hides it behind her back just in time to face Jason as he finishes breaking his way into the room. Mommy 
Jason, mother is talking to you. Ginny is able to use her knowledge and training, along with the fact that she has given this prior thought, taking advantage of Jason's damaged psyche, and she disarms him for just long enough to get him in a vulnerable position for a well-placed machete strike. Right to the... As she raised her arm, Jason was able to see his mom's head on the table behind Ginny, and he came to his senses. Jason takes round two, as he blocks her swing with his pickaxe and quickly gets a pretty gruesome gash across her leg. Paul! Paul and Jason are wrestling around while Ginny gets back up on her feet, grabs the machete, and with Jason's back to her, she slightly misses his head and sends it deep off to the just to the side of Jason's neck, almost reaching his heart. Jason immediately goes down, it's a very deep wound, and he is bleeding profusely. Round three goes to Ginny and Paul. That would be game, set, and match. Ginny's got a pretty big wound now so that they need to attend to, so they head back to the cabin. We'll get right back to this in a second. Ginny wakes up on a stretcher as she gets put into the back of an ambulance. they pull away that's the movie they pull apart one at the end which sort of ruins the movie a couple quick things to wrap everything up number one i did brush over some of the more negative now standard horror tropes used throughout this movie however they never sinned too badly in that regard in this movie number two muffin 
dear old dead as shit muffin. I guess the appearance of muffin at the end is a testament to how banged up it really is. What we saw in the woods was very clearly a dog, specifically Muffin, and it was very clearly telegraphed that the dog was going to be killed. There really is no figuring out this ending to the movie because if you try to say, well, she was already passed out at point X, then she couldn't have made it to point Y, and so on. The dream sequence argument doesn't hold up and neither does no dream sequence. It just simply can't make sense. And the third item on my little wrap-up list here, Beghead Jason. Dear old, not-dead-as-shit, bagless-headed Jason. First of all, I kind of dig Beghead Jason, but I'm glad this franchise evolved as it did. The hockey mask is iconic in a way this Jason could never be. Second of all, This movie had to retcon a lot of what happened in the first movie, including some of the lore set up in the first movie. And I think they did do that when Ginny hypothesizes the potential realities of Jason. To me, this Jason is not supernatural. He never drowned. Instead, he received a head injury, was mentally challenged to begin with, developed a tumor or something which affected his mental growth, or is potentially just a sick and deranged person. This is all pretty well covered in Ginny's speech at the bar, and the fact that when we see his face here at the end, and he looks like a full-grown adult, we could easily say that the last moments in part one really were Alice having a nightmare. Instead, in quote-unquote reality, Jason was sitting somewhere in the woods, and while he watched his mom go on a murdering rampage, he learned from her, and then he saw her get decapitated. The franchise would go on to retcon this movie, but I strongly believe that's the intention of this movie. That's how I received this movie, and so that's how this movie will be rated by me. The writers simultaneously take a dig at the first movie, while I think also hinting to the audience what I just went over. This last clip comes right after Paul tells his campfire tale at the beginning of the movie. That's ancient history. Jason drowned, Mrs. Voorhees was killed, and Camp Crystal Lake is off limits. You got it? Got you, huh? What'd you think? Second act needs more. What's your favorite scene, dude? I'm coming from left field with this one. It's not necessarily any single scene, and I wish we had more time with these, too. All of the moments we get with Mark and Vicky are very wholesome, in a way. I think their blossoms. Jesus fuck. I think their blossoms. <laughs> That's the third time. I think their blossoming. You fuck. I think their blossoming relationship is adorable. They do have the best chemistry of any of the couples, and the actress for Vicky deserves this shout out. She does an amazing job at flirting. That doesn't say a whole lot for this movie on a whole, you know, in regards to, like, stunning visuals or, like, great moments and kills. But besides Ginny, those two are the most memorable characters in this movie, and neither of the two are in the movie until some 45-odd minutes in. Terry's delivery when she calls Scott a pervert is also perfect, with a little honorable mention here. I'm glad that they included that in the film because originally Scott is pretty charming, so it's nice to make sure that the audience is against him before he gets slaughtered. That was totally dope. 
What do you say that we get down and technical, if you know what I mean? Let's start with the writing. They do have very archetypal type characters in this movie, but I felt they did a nice job of giving many of them enough death. This movie does a nice job of hiding certain people's non-deaths while also never being dishonest about it. They show everyone who's been killed's bodies. Not having Paul's body in the scene when Ginny walks into Jason's shrine is our little clue that he could still be alive. They stuck to a very similar script as the first movie in terms of structure, but there's more meat on the bones this time, in a shorter run length too, really, and it's very much a remake of the first movie. The creativity of the kills is mostly lackluster. I spoke a fair amount about the writing through the walkthrough. All in all, I really think that this was well written, especially if you consider what they had to work with from the last movie. They had to get creative and come up with a good way to continue the franchise, and I think they did an excellent job of that. They got the audience on the same page. They paid attention to a lot of the little details I pointed out in the walkthrough. The pacing is very good after the first 15 to 20 minutes, and they get you to like most of the characters. 95% of the writing is great! The very end sequence, unfortunately, leaves a terrible taste in the mouth. I would give the writing above an 8 if it wasn't for the last few minutes. Instead, I'll give the writing a 7.78 out of 10. Now let's look at the cinematography. In the beginning of the movie, when Alice takes a shower, there is a short fake scare where the camera does a point-of-view shot towards the curtains, and you can see the shadow of the cameraman. That was either, one, cheating for a scare, or two, poor cinematography. All in all, the film may be cleaner, better lit, and have better cameras, and the people behind the cameras, they know how to use this camera as well, but there's less creativity to the shots. There's less life being given to the film from these cinematographers. Very little stood out to me as, oh, that's a neat shot. So I'm going to go with a 5.85 out of 10 for cinematography. Acting, I think Ginny had the potential to become a scream queen. The fear on her is palpable more often than not. They could have reshot some scenes or done a better job in post-production with Annunciation. There were several lines that I played like five times over to try to figure out what the person said and it is just gibberish. All in all, the acting is borderline good. There is some actually poor acting, but not too much of it. Being our survivor girl, Ginny is carrying the score on its back. I'm going to give the acting a 6.55 out of 10. Which leads us for into sound design. I did not purposely sing that one. All right, so the soundtrack really picks up in the third act, and I like a lot of what Harry did with it. Even though it is very reminiscent of the first movie, he remixed it just enough, which helps it to better match the pace and the tone of this movie. I say it picked up in the third act largely because there wasn't much room for it during the first hour and ten minutes of the movie. I believe that is in part due to the choppiness of the movie itself. The score is just... It doesn't have any room to grow. There's not much room for it in the rest of the movie. On a positive note, there were a couple really well-timed stings in this movie, just like in the first. 
I didn't notice any specific great things about the sound design. If you ignore the soundtrack and the score, they did just a good enough job with the sound effects. The voices are a little hard to hear sometimes, and some of the dialogue is incomprehensible, and that does go in part back to the enunciation issue from my acting critique. I don't think I brought up a single thing in my walkthrough, so I'm going to give the sound design a 5.15 out of 10. That leaves us with the production design. Tom Savini, unfortunately, did not return for this movie, and that can be seen. But that doesn't mean I think that the effects were bad. I actually think that they are really good. They're just very, very simple standard effects. That's all. But they were well executed. Most notably, I'm speaking about the bodily harm effects. Due to some backlash from the first movie, the MPAA got stricter with what they allowed some movies to get away with. And this movie has an entire minute plus of those types of scenes that had to be cut out. And that hurt the flow a little bit in this movie. It's part of the reason that I say the movie feels choppy. I cannot see those scenes within the movie or even many of them on their own. So I have to judge and rate based on what we got. Back to production design. The head of Pamela Voorhees is passable, leaning on the good side of the fence. Other than that, it's shot on location for a lot of the movie. I guess the cabins do really feel like real cabins. Albeit the main cabin seems quite large for a camp. I feel like it feels more like a someone's house. The clothing is what it is. That's what the kids were wearing in those days, I think. Besides that, there really isn't a whole lot to talk about. I guess the last thing that I can think of is that the weaponry does look good. I'd go a bit higher, but I just didn't feel like I was actually at a camp that kids were supposed to be coming to any day now, like I did in the first movie. So 5.79 out of 10 for the production design. And that brings us to the enjoyability rating. This rating is a bit of a mix of how much did I enjoy the movie and how much do I think that you would enjoy the movie. The movie is a bit choppy, like when the first two counselors go onto the Camp Blood grounds and the movie cuts away for a moment to tell two of the corniest jokes ever and then it cuts right back to the two in the woods. There's simply no need for comedic relief at that point. The mood was starting to build and then they ruined it. Mark's kill is pretty fun with him falling backwards down a long set of stairs in his wheelchair. The first 15 to 20 minutes are a bit of a slug but I think they were necessary since they didn't aim to put out some piece of junk slasher film where all that matters are the kills. And I think the fact that they focused on creating some lore is a large part of why this franchise was able to keep going. They definitely set the tone for the future of Friday the 13th. I'm invested in some of the people in this movie. It is a stellar ride. Well, it's not not quite stellar, but the MPAA cutting it down probably really hurts the impact of the kills because even though I am invested in these folks, the impact isn't quite there when they meet their demise. I find the part where Ginny pretends to be Jason's mom a wee bit silly, but it is well set up. So I'll go with a 6.25 out of 10. Which brings us to my last category, comparing this movie to movies of a similar genre, specifically in this case, horror slash slasher flicks. Horror slasher flicks. Alright, so a couple of the scares actually work in this movie. Most specifically, right after Paul gets foe killed and Ginny is holding onto the door while simultaneously reaching to close the window. 
I thought that was well-timed, well-done. And all in all, the movie is above average. I'm going to throw it a little bit of a bone because I think at least three of those categories got docked for something that is out of the movie's control. This movie gets a 6.73 out of 10 when comparing it to movies from a similar genre. I could probably knock the editing, but nothing stood out as terrible Like on the whole. I do think there was room for improvement there. So let's recap those scores, all of them out of 10. Writing, 7.78. Cinematography, 5.85. Sound design, 5.15. Acting, 6.55. Production design, 5.79. Enjoyability rating, 6.25. In comparison to largely, I guess, B-level slasher flicks, 6.73. We take the average of those, and the official podcast score for Friday the 13th, part 2, is 6.3 on the dot out of 10. It's time for some totally tubular facts! From the Crystal Likes Memories bonus feature on the disc that I own is a clip with Peter Brackey. I hope I remember his name correctly from my last... um, review on part one yeah so basically what steve minor wanted to do because steve minor was elevated to the status of director for part two because sean cunningham did not want to return steve minor really wanted to surround himself with kind of a group of people that were familiar that he was comfortable with and that were familiar with the first film so a lot of the people on the first film the crew members were promoted on the sequel the assistant cameraman on the first film became the director of photography the still photographer on the first film became an assistant director so there was sort of a sense that uh, there's still a sense of camaraderie and fun but there was a sense of pressure. I mean, I know Steve Meyer definitely felt like he liked the structure of the first film. He liked the basic template, but he wanted to make it a little scarier, a little faster paced, um, a little better made. I mean, Friday had uh, Part 2 had a, a slightly higher budget. It was slicker. It was shot a little more professionally. They introduced the idea of a steady cam. So there's a lot of roving POVs and it definitely is a, is a more polished look to the sequel. I think this all makes a lot of sense and can be seen and reflected throughout some of my analysis in the walkthrough and technical ratings. The primary reason that Alice gets killed off in this movie is because she didn't want to come back for it. Why would you ask? Unfortunately, a fan of the first movie began stalking her, going as far as breaking into her own apartment, and she feared for her life at that time. She actually did not accept any on-screen roles, instead sticking to voice work for about 20 years. Yeah, 20 years. Because from what I can tell on IMDb, she did finally return on screen in 2010, and she still works in Hollywood to this day. 30 years, not 20 Almost every Friday the 13th movie has a prankster or a comedic relief character. And in Friday the 13th Part 2, it was Ted, played by Stu Charno. Ironically, this character winds up avoiding the slaughter because he stays in town all night. In every other Friday the 13th, the characters that are introduced are all killed off except for the final girl. And sometimes there's a final girl and a final guy, like in this movie. Ted is not the final guy or girl. He just parties all night while trying to find a chick who likes him, which would become strange for a genre that became known for punishing people for literally every behavior he displayed. Maybe his lack of a death upset everyone in the world so much that a secret pact to always kill off the annoying guy was created after this movie's release. The writers truly did write a good script. Good night, Jenny. This place closed. Straight back to camp. 
You see, they even let us know why everyone who went downtown did not return in time to possibly help save Ginny and Paul. And that is one of a lot of examples that I did not cover. In the scene when Jason crashes into the window and grabs Ginny, the actor, Warrington Gillette, was actually hurt. He tried to break into the window, only it did not break, and he ended up banging his head really hard on the glass. The plot of part two shocked most people associated with the original film. Betsy Palmer, Tom Savini, and Sean Cunningham all have made public remarks about how stupid it was that Jason was alive the whole time. The actors stayed in the cabins on set. John Furry, Bill Randolph, and Russell Russell Todd came to Lauren Marie Taylor's cabin to play a prank on her. They scratched on her screen window, and I said all those names to tell you that she hyperventilated until she fainted. Amy Steele, the actress who played Ginny, has stated that she found shooting the quote-unquote window scene difficult. The shot required three takes, and her frightened reaction is genuine. The shot was in slow motion. A high-speed camera was used, and every time that she heard the film start running on that camera, she would tense up and get scared. I will wrap this up with one last fact. I'm including this because I saw plenty of hate in the reviews for the special effects work. I, on the other hand, almost praised it. This, folks, is called gloating. With Tom Savini unavailable, they turned to Stan Winston to deliver the gore for part two. Unfortunately, Winston was forced to leave at some point due to scheduling conflicts, making way for Carl Fullerton. Let me repronounce his name. Carl Fullerton. Within five years, Winston won an Oscar for his work on James Cameron's Aliens, and his Stan Winston Studios would go on to be responsible for the design work on The Terminator, Alien, Jurassic Park, and the Predator series. After a decade in gore, Fullerton ascended to the A-list of Hollywood makeup artists with Glory, The Godfather Part 3, Silence of the Lambs, and Philadelphia. So take care, guys. If you're still listening, thank you so much for your support. Give me a follow on Twitter at Extreme Movie, E-X-T-R-E-M-E, Movie, or you can email me. That's in the description. I will work on setting up a Patreon account once I'm fully settled into my new home state. My next review should be on the original Space Jam, and then the new one will be coming out shortly after that release, which I will also do a, I'll do a quick style review on the new one. So until next time, I love you. You love you. Peace.